You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Studs Radio Show, the radio show where we talk about what, Luke? Docs! There we go. Um, that was the Beatles we were listening to, and i got to say, starting out with the Beatles, it, it always makes me feel relaxed. <laughs> it, it has that that power, I guess. Is that the, the power? Right, a power, a relaxing power? Mm-hmm. Um, it's about five past two o'clock here in Vancouver. Uh, broadcast. Is it raining? What's the weather? The weather is delightful. It is sunny out. Hmm. Not too hot, thankfully. Last week was ridiculously hot, and I live in the top floor of a four-story walk-up apartment building that likes to collect all the heat in my apartment. Um, Sorry, I just changed phones. There we go. Uh, The person you're hearing, other than myself, is Carol Tyler, uh, my guest for this week. Um, The three books you have are, I'll start with the oldest, I guess, uh, the oldest collection. I mean, you've been doing comics for 
since before this collection came out the job thing um more recently late bloomer and very recently you'll never know Mm -hmm. uh book one a good decent a good and decent man yeah um (laughs) everything there uh sound right did i say everything right that's perfect (laughs) Now, oh, you're wonderful. This is wonderful. And I'm glad you're having nice weather. We're having typical Midwest weather today. It's uh, just cleared. It rained like, you know, thunderstormy rain for the last uh, few hours. But apparently it's going to be very rainy later. We don't get thunderstorms in Vancouver. Oh, do you know what they are? I love them. I, I, I've, been, I've been outside of Vancouver. I've been in Toronto for extended periods of time, hmm. but we don't get thunderstorms. It just, well, I Well, the guess. reason why I said that is because um, my daughter was born in California, and until she was 12, you know, she, I had to try and explain to her what <laughs> thunderstorms were and what six feet of snow was like. <laughs> ice, uh, ice you know, at the corner where they uh, plow the street, and so there'll be a heap of, like, iced-over, icky, you know, dirty snow. But then there's a puddle, and I've also told her there's a certain time of year, this sweet time of year when you can put on your new tennis shoes and dodge those slush puddles effectively. Now, you're in Cleveland, right? No, No. I'm at the other end of the state. Oh, okay. Cleveland is in the northeast east corner of ohio i'm in the southwest corner ah i can see kentucky <laughs> some good and indiana bur- some good bourbon mm-hmm. there we go um i don't know why i thought cleveland but i guess ohio oh you're probably thinking about p car yeah he is and actually i've had a lot of folks from cleveland on recently um, mm. i had peter cooper on he was from cleveland mm. as well um okay. no you're this is cincinnati cincinnati that's it it starts with a C. Yeah. <laughs> Named after the great Roman general. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a history major. He was, uh, oh, good. Okay, I'm glad. I mean, because, you know, I just, I, I really, I love, how can I be diplomatic here? <laughs> I, I used to promote the town, you know, feverishly. I'd bring people and, oh, look at the beautiful Seven Hills. And I still love it. I'm just so focused on other things and what I do now. I don't think about being a Cincinnatian. You know, there's people who have never left this town. And they're wonderful people. I love them. It's just that, um, you know, I'm from Chicago. I was born in Chicago and lived in California for many years in New York and all that stuff. So um, um, right now I'm in Cincinnati. You're you're very uh, well-traveled, gathering from reading the I sat down and read as much as I had of your stuff over the last week. Um, oh my goodness! Are you okay? <laughs> I, th- I think I'll be okay. Um, it's interesting though. Like one of the one of the first things that struck out to me, or it stuck out to me after reading, you'll never know, is one of the few comics that I can think of. And I, I asked another person, and he can only think of one other that I hadn't even read, where it talks about the experience of a single mother. Hmm. I found that striking and interesting. Maybe that shows you how much uh, comics are uh, are still a pretty duty affair. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you're a single mom, there's no time to do comics. <laughs> no. Right? No, it's just, um, you, you know, regardless of the subject matter, just in general, um, you know, it's, it's a heavily populated male enterprise. 
and um, I'm not anti anybody or anything. I'm just saying that if if you're like doing mom duty, I mean, it's just natural for kids to say mom, you know. Yeah. So um, it just kind of comes down to that, you know. If yeah, I was working on You'll Never Know uh, book two recently, but my daughter's graduation from college is Saturday. Wow. So, um, you know, that comes first, and I've had to put, um, uh, do a lot of things around the house and stuff I normally wouldn't do, you know, moving piles of wood off the porch so people can sit there and <laughs> enjoy the day uh, with their cake and stuff like that, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, being a mom is, is the top job. One of your most memorable um, pages that stick out to me that I remember seeing many times before is the one that I think was the back cover of a weirdo. Which is the the portrait of yourself um, as a mother, oh, the new mom, the new mom. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> we have to tell people who are tuned in and don't know what that image is like. But it's you know it's like an anatomy chart where they show you the parts of the body. But what I did was select out the parts that are particularly hard hit through having had a child. Now, I had a 26-hour labor, and something was goofy, but I needed, you know, to go the distance with the whole, no, I didn't want to get cut open. I had midwives, so we did it naturally, but oh, God. All right, so it was intense, and it's really, it really did a number on my physical body. And then, and then I breastfed for a year and a half. So when you go through a 26-hour labor, and I was three weeks late with having her, so I had, I was this really one. pregnant. <laughs> this very large child. <laughs> yes. And exhausted and couldn't eat because of the heartburn. and all. So I just, I mapped all that out on this chart. You know, this is what it's like. And here's this kind of funny little story about that. There was a uh, store in our town, Sacramento, there. And, you know, it was one of these places where you could go in and get, like, I hope I can say this, uh, men's private parts salt and pepper shakers, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, just kind of tawdry and weird stuff. It was called How Tacky, right? Woo! So I took the shirts in there. I thought, oh, these would be perfect for How Tacky. Okay, they're not in business. That's why I can say that. <laughs> so I went in there with the shirts, and they were like, oh, oh, I, I, I don't know if we can sell these. Um, let me ask my friend who's had a baby. So like a week later, I went in to see how it was going with the shirts. I can't sell those. My friend that had a baby said that it wasn't like that at all. <laughs> well, I said, it's a... Oh, I see. My shirts are too tacky for how tacky. I gotcha. It's, uh, it's, uh, sometimes uh, people are uh, afraid of the truth, maybe. Well, I was selling them. actually ended up selling them out of the trunk of my car to, like, bag boys at the grocery <laughs> store. They go, oh, my sister's having a baby. She's going to really like that. So I don't know if it, it really flew with, with these women or not, but I sold most of them to bag boys who were putting groceries in the trunk. Well, and, and also the fact that they probably on a regular basis uh, deal with a lot of new mums or are familiar with uh, some of the um, underlying madness. Yeah, that would be your 3 a.m. shoppers. Yeah. Because <laughs> when she couldn't sleep or something, I thought, okay, fine, we're going to go to the store, and I'd just go up and down the aisles like, half asleep, and she'd be like, perky and wake, you know, all, all awake, and come on, mom. I'd be like, go to sleep. Oh, God. I couldn't imagine. Yeah, sleep was the thing I, I missed the most during those uh, during that first year. Mm -hmm. Do you ever catch up um, on, the, on the sleep? 
Well, yeah. Why? Do you have, like, a family thing going? No, no, I don't at all. For, well, for those listeners who do, there is hope. <laughs> it's almost as if as soon as language comes, as soon as they learn to articulate and can tell you, and you can tell them, go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, good advice on really working on forming your child's... Uh, Cognitive abilities, I guess. Well, you know, at a certain point, I just said, Mommy's closed. I'm done, okay? It's like 9.30. I'm tired. Okay, go to bed. I, I didn't do that. Like, some people would twirl the little thing in the nursery and sing a song. I thought, I'm not doing this every single night. I'm exhausted. So I did all that I needed to do, you know, to make her happy and well-balanced, fulfilled and all of that. But at a certain point, I'd put her in a crib and say, You know what? Mommy's closed now, Okay. <laughs> Bye. See you in the morning. Because <laughs> I was exhausted. And so um, that's what I did. And, and then she now knows that even to this day, you go to bed because you're tired, not because you want to be entertained. <laughs> Is that weird? No. no. You know, I kind, of, I kind of admire that, like, aspect. Like, no weird. I, I would read to her in the day when we were both, like, of a sound mind. And we would do word games driving and stuff like that. And I always, you know, I'm kind of tuned into language. And so we worked on that stuff with a fresh mind. But at night, it's like, aren't you tired? Okay, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. You're going to bed, too. Good night. Here's your kitty. Good night, kitty. Bye. Good night, kitty, kitty. You know, her little black kitty toy uh, stuffed animal. Okay. I think it, there's, a, there's a thing in there in one of the books about, it's called Just a Bad Seed. And I'm putting her to bed, and she keeps calling out because there were some flowers outside the window that were creepy to her. There was these sunflowers. Do you remember that story I, in Late Bloomer? I don't. Well, but. that was pretty much it where I'd say, just don't pay any attention. I pull the curtain shut. Go to bed. You'll be fine. <laughs> so readers, get that Late Bloomer story out and check it out. It's just Never about... It turned out she was frightened because the babysitter was abusing her. Oh, the I re- remember the babysitter story. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. That's just at the beginning of the story. Yeah. See, it's the the, sto- the 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 rest of the story is what I remember from reading it. Yeah, yeah. it was Are more. We, about she was the, saying, "Look, I'm a sunflower." Yeah, and I cut the things down, and we were fine. Well, let's start out with with your history with comics. Um, what got you into comics? Uh, as a painter at Syracuse, you know, I'm going to talk about that, you know, kind of where I went to now, because I never had aspirations, like, as a child to grow up and be a cartoonist, and I don't have any particular orientation in terms of terms of a dream life, you know, like, oh, I love, um, you know, Wayne Boring or something like, you know, these artists that people refer to. I, I, I just didn't have that, because my brother had comics, and he kept them under his bed, and we were not allowed to look at his stuff. My sister and I. So um, that was kind of like off limits. Uh, the only thing I did get into was some Lulu comics later, Nancy and stuff. And then when I, you know, in the daily newspaper, of course, I read Nancy during the 60s and stuff like that. The Ernie Bushmiller, Nancy. Mm-hmm. But um, then kind of in college, um, I was finding that the paintings I was working on, uh, this would be early 80s, Actually, in the late 70s, too, I, I always wanted to do something with images, and um, that was a no-no. I mean, we're talking about the era with um, 
color field abstraction and, uh, you know, uh, completely like Donald Judd boxes. You remember that? You know, just like Dan Flavin light sculpture, just really severely uh, uh, minimalistic and, uh, you know, no imagery whatsoever. And, and I, you know, I, I really liked, you know, I kind of liked, uh, could I could draw and I kind of liked doing that with paint. You know, I liked the way it felt to make a, circle and then turn that into a cup or something like that you know i liked the figure i wanted to do that and i felt like ashamed because that wasn't like cool to do and the professors and people were like well we're we're just exasperated we don't know what to do with you <laughs> it's what a- to do with me what are you talking about i'm supposed to be exploring and finding my my voice right so that's kind of where it came from was the more I kind of got into image, I got into sequence, and then I wanted to say more and tell more. And uh, a couple of my friends from college were like, well, you know, have you seen this and that? And they were, like, flashing uh, the work of people like Spiegelman and, um, uh, uh, you know, Robert and um, Bill. Robert Crumb and Bill. Who's who's the Bill? Yeah. Bill Bill Griffith and Jay Lynch and all these You know, so it's like, oh, that that then was like, oh, this is like interesting content. I mean, these guys can really, they can really do this stuff. They don't have to like pretend like throw in like um, an abstract shape on top of the whole thing to make it valid. So I, I like that, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I was doing it. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do that because I'm tired of apologizing or hiding behind uh, these isms that the art world has decided are important. I don't know what they're talking about. I just want to tell, you know, I want to communicate. So that's sort of how I ended up uh, just full-fledged transitioning over to that. Were you familiar with Jerry Moriarty's stuff, or is this before no. he became... No. No. Okay. No. Um, I, I was at Syracuse for a while, and then I was in New York City itself. I was kind of connected with that. There was a... my. Well, Syracuse had like a branch where you could go. Uh, well, you could fly to New York from uh, Syracuse for twenty bucks. I believe that. So I'd fly down for the day and go look at like you know Philip Guston paintings and stuff like that. It was awesome. And Vermeer, you know, up the Met. Do all that when you're young. You go to all the museums on one day and then go home. <laughs> so, um, and you have to also understand at that time, early '80s. I would take, like, there was a lot of guerrilla stuff. There was uh, graffiti, and, and I'm not saying I was a big, intense graffiti writer, but I did have markers and spray cans in my coat, because that's what you did. Anybody who was doing art in the early 80s would tag. So, you know, I had my little tag I'd write. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm like a tiny speck in the sea of that, but I nevertheless, the scene was that. You know, the Lower East Side, the whole thing, you know, Keith Herring was over there, you know, in the subways, and that whole hip-hop thing was really happening, and gallery openings were crazy with that stuff. So, like, there was a, a show at Danceteria, which was a big, huge, you know, cool place with many layers, and Spiegelman had something, an opening for mouths or something, so I just had in my coat pocket with my spray cans and markers, I had a series of paintings that I did about, a, I don't know, this character I had, developed and she gets impregnated by the spirit of Elvis or something, you know. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was spelled out in, in little panels. I painted these little panels and I hung them up and I was so proud and I had kind of like a gorilla fake opening at Danceteria and 
at a certain point, we went downstairs to listen to the new hot singer, Madonna, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever like happened that. to her? Huh? Whatever happened to her? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the, you know, that was the scene. Everybody was just kind of, you know, things were exploding in a different direction. And I was glad that I was there to recognize that that's sort of like what, what was of interest to me, you know, being more specific in, in the narrative. Now, that, after that, that's when you moved to California? Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's kind of where you jumped more uh, feet first into the... Yeah, I jumped into it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, isn't it time for the 12th caller? To, if you're the 12th caller, this is, this is live. If you call in, you get a free, like, you know, uh, pen point or something. <laughs> <laughs> the nah. lines are open, everybody. Call in and get your free pinpoint. I'll I'll send you one, etc. Okay, what was the next question? I got nothing to give. Um, about uh, getting involved into actually into the comics, like your uh, was women's comics. Was that one of the first ones you were published in? No, actually, um, not. Um, women's was after I had been in Weirdo. Oh, okay. And I will say that I am not one of the women cartoonists that was. You know, like, I, I didn't get there until 83 or 4 or something like that, 1980. You know, it was the early 80s. And women's comics tradition had been around for a long time. And then Aileen and Diane had Twisted Sisters, and they were had their thing going on in the 70s, you know, into the 80s. So by the time I was ready to kind of get my stuff going, Aileen was editor of Weirdo. So that would have been, like, I, I don't know the exact dates. It maybe 86 or 7? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure when she took over. Robert was doing it for a while. And then Aileen, you know, Aileen and Robert were, we were neighbors in the Central Valley. Ah. And um, I just think of them as my neighbors. (laughs) So I would do some artwork and then put Julie in her car seat and go over in our bomb. We had a uh, 1967 Chrysler Newport, and I would drive past the... Um, nut groves to winters to deliver my page. <laughs> now, was that being um, in proximity with other artists, was that good for you as far as your own kind of creative in terms of uh, storytelling, like learning off other people? Well, I'll have to set up some proper acknowledgements here, uh, props. Um, when I did go to California, I went in 82. And I was still in college as a graduate student. And one of my goals was to look up all the cool guys from Arcade whose work I'd seen, right? Mm. So that summer I met everybody. And I also flashed my own work and I asked for help, you know, and like, what can I do and all that stuff. And, you know, I had the fortune, you know, I've been married to Justin Green and and uh, for um, 25 years <laughs> edit that out um uh no whatever i i don't even we don't i don't think about that stuff but and i you know i need to also say he doesn't coach me or anything mm-hmm. we're definitely uh two separate houses of function and it's because you know, i really don't want to be derivative ever of anybody else's work but i did get some you know, I did, like, figure out what size page you work on and 
what kind of paper to use, you know, those basic questions. And one of the things I learned from the underground guys, what they told me was, they learned from, like, Kurtzman and people like that. So um, those guys are masters of the craft, mm-hmm. truly. I mean, the, you had to do it for the, you know, the, the, uh, the print medium. I'm talking about getting it ready for publication. And the emphasis is on the final result as the printed product. And these guys were used to doing color separations with ruby lists, you know, cutting color sets, and real technical stuff that had to do with, you know, the printing trade. So there was as much knowledge of that early, like, that was like traditions that had been passed down, and this is way before computers were, were happening. So to do color was cost prohibitive, and you had to have all this incredible skill about cutting these color separations and all this stuff. So that kind of canceled out my painterliness. I had to learn black and white techniques. I had to learn how to make the black line art work because of the medium. But then when laser and all that came in, that blew it open. Then you could do subtle washes, you could do color, you know, little things. You could use other materials other, other than an X-Acto knife and then have in your head, oh, I think I'll put this at a 20% screen of red and then I'll put this at a, this one at a 10% screen. You know, all this, that kind of thinking changed. So, um, but I, I kind of was on the, the, the last gasp of that. <laughs> okay. So Robert and Bill and Justin and all... All the early cartoonists, the undergrounds, they really have had a workman's uh, understanding, you know. Uh, uh, and I, as the apprentice, you know, just kind of trying to learn it, you know. I, I, the kind of conversations I'd have with Justin are, do you have any Zipatone 20% zip? Or, you know, I didn't say, like, how should I do this or anything like that. I had to figure all that out on my own. I just sort of knew I could see them doing that stuff, you know. So um, process and production was mainly the inspiration, but it wasn't anything like fluid or, you know. Well, I think one, one interesting aspect that you're bringing to the table a lot of the other guys didn't have is that art education background. Well, you know, I, I think, um, like, Aileen went to art school and uh, Justin went to art school. He went to RISD, and um, I know Bill has art, you know, People have been around. They've been to art schools, and I'm, I don't want to just narrow in on them. I mean, I've met lots of people, and and uh, you know, Peter Bag, everybody, Chester Brown. Yep. They'd come through. Not Chester. Who did I meet? Oh, I met Adrian Tomey. Knocked on our front door once. You know, um, <laughs> is Justin home? And I was there <laughs> with the brown carpet in our rental unit with the baby. Oh yeah, just a minute. I'll get him. That's how I met Adrian Tomey. Um, now he's a fancy New Yorker. Yeah, I don't think he remembers coming to my little to our little rental unit in Sacramento. But um, that, anyway, that you know, people had people had um, uh, had art art sensibility. Okay, and knew that. Yeah. No, I don't think I'm the first like fine art crossover person at all. No, and that's not that's not what I'm saying. Um, I'm sorry. What do you say? <laughs> I guess it's just the it, maybe I'm 
not even saying the right thing. Like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just wrong. <laughs> They're saying that you're bringing in that that fine art aesthetic. Not to say that there's a separation comic. Maybe and I'm fine the art. first official. Like super, I really see myself first as a painter. Maybe I'm. Maybe that's what you're. Thinking. And that, yeah, maybe that's it. Because a lot of these guys, like you're talking about, how they grew up on Kurtzman, mm-hmm. and that's a big focus for them. While well, you kind of um, grew up. I'm a teeth. Yeah. And then you, you, you later veered into this yeah. crazy world called comics. Yep. I have to tell you a funny thing about our little daughter. This is the funniest story, right? So my daughter grew up under the drawing table, and, like, she knew Robert and Eileen and Sophie and all that stuff. And um, we'd go down, we visit Bill and Diane, and, you know, we'd go to Turner's, and her babysitter was Leonardo DiCaprio and stuff like this, right? All these cartoonists, those burrito bashes. And so, like, when she was, like, two or three years old, I took her to, like, daycare for the first time. And she came home and she said, Mommy, guess what? Jason's dad works at a bank. (laughs) And I said, okay. And I couldn't figure out what she was talking about. Well, she was floored that there were people out there that did something else besides cartooning. (laughs) (laughs) Jason's dad works at a bank. So the norm for her has always been this art world, or this, you know, ink bottles and pencils and got to run to the printer or the deadline or FedEx. That's our life, you know. Growing up around a stack of Zipatone and Ruby Liff. Yeah, and that would be Justin's world with his T-squares and his mall sticks. For me, it's um, <laughs> more, um, you know, there's a dog sleeping under the drawing table. You know, it's a little different. Did she ever get into comics herself? Or did she avoid the Awesome chops, you know. I mean, she's really good. And today, I'm going to say I'm like the proud parent. My, you know, we were sitting there as the proud parents of Julia Green, Justin, and I, because she has um, she had her senior thesis presentation. I mean, this just happened, and she has developed the most awesome concept of clothing for graffiti writers. (laughs) That's so. Well thought out and fantastic, and somebody was like, well, I can't really talk about that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, as a proud parent, we were just, like, awestruck at how, it's like, we looked at each other like, oh, my God, this is our kid. Who is that fabulous person up there? That's our kid. <laughs> yeah, she she's, uh, has pretty awesome ideas about, um, uh, just about whatever she does. She's mm-hmm. great. She's brought her own uh, ideas to the table. She does not want to do comics like Mom and Dad, although she has drawn comics, and I keep telling her, why don't you send them to Gary Groff and he'll put them in Moom? <laughs> she says, no, because, oh, you know, she um, doesn't believe they're up to the standard that she um, wants them to be at, and she finds a better outlet for herself with kind of this, Clothing stuff she does, you know, uh, hoodies or stealth clothing for writers. She likes that stuff. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to respect that attitude of it's, you know, not ready oh. or it's not the right thing. And No, whatever she wants to do. You know, I told her you can always fall back on comics. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably one of the few parents that'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it all rate is seventy five bucks, <laughs> <laughs> and that's good, right? <laughs> that's a good rate. I think I can do a quick song break. 
we're right. well past, uh, we're just past half past the hour. Um, okay. I think Echo and the Bunnymen sound good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love that. Sure. All right. Go okay, we'll be right back. Inkstead, CITR 101.9 FM. I'm talking to Carol Tyler.
You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Inkstead Show. Or the Inkstead's the radio show we talk about comics. It's just about 2.40, and uh, we're listening to some good old 80s Echo and the Bunnymen. Lips like sugar. Feels like it's 1987. I've got big curly hair with the bangle earrings and... Mm-hmm. Those shoulder were the days. pads. Shoulder pads. Oh, whatever happened to shoulder pads? Nails. I, Having the nails done. The na- get the nails did and some mm-hmm. shoulder pads. My guest right now that you're hearing is uh, Carol Tyler. Her books are uh, The Job Thing, which is it even still in print? I think there's plenty if somebody there's wants <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, late Bloomer um, and You'll Never Know, book one, A Good and Decent Man, all from the fine folks at Fanagraphics. Hi, guys. Um, we're talking about comics kids in comics kids doing comics um let's jump into late bloomer what why the choice of the title do you feel like you're late bloomer in comics uh, we were working on kim and thompson and i were trying to figure out what to call it <laughs> <laughs> i guess you know i don't know it's fine it's fine okay i'll <laughs> ask no more questions about that <laughs> Every flower on the cover is a late-blooming variety. Ah. So that's where you'll see your purple cone flowers and such. There we go. I would have no idea. As opposed to tulips and things like that. Now, the work in here, is this your first at painted comic work? Say that again, Wes. The the painted work within uh, Late Bloomer. Is this oh, your, your you mean f- some of the... St- the stories. There, the yeah. Well, yeah, because the technology changed, you know, when uh, we were able to, or they were able to do, I think it's called, well, I don't know, something with scanning. Maybe it was drum scanning at first. At, at first, in fact, most of the work in Late Bloomer would was something that I had to send to the editor, to the publisher there at Fanagraphics. And then they would have to work with a company to either take photos of it, I don't know, uh, the process, negatives or something. It's weird because we did, uh, you'll never know, it was all done uh, scanning. It was all done by scan, uh, me scanning, you know, simpler, a lot simpler. I didn't have to send any original art out of the house, well, practically not, but all the work there, yeah, and see, with that change of technology, like I mentioned before, you could now get, I could do things with, like, so-called art materials, like, you know, gouache and colored pencil and stuff like that, and retain, like, if you make a little splotchy area, a nice little watercolory area, and you know how it looks on the piece of paper, well, then that would translate in print. And that was, like, impossible. It was unheard of in the, when I first started out. You couldn't mm-hmm. get watercolor effects unless you spent a lot of money on photographic processes and stuff like that. So um, it was just prohibitive. The cost was just out of this world. So, yeah, this change in technology really allowed me to kind of go back to all that, like, intuitive, uh, mushy stuff that I liked about painting, you know, just playing around with the color and all that. I feel like when I look at your color work, um, you're having more fun with it, (laughs) and it seems more comfortable. That's 
weird because I did a black and white piece the other day, and I thought, oh, my God, this is so simple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's just you dip the pen and you put the ink down. <laughs> no, I've, I've really uh, challenged myself to have, like, a uber palette, I guess, is the way to put it. I don't just use, like, simple colors. I think so fractured at this point into sub category, you know, I don't know. I don't even want to talk about that. I just have so much color stuff I'm doing, but you're right that the same kind of like thinking about how to make a decision about the paint, the color, it all comes from my painting background. Now, I am severely allergic to oil paint, but that is my favorite thing to do. I can paint with oils outside, so every summer I make one picture. (laughs) And that's when I kind of recharge my batteries on the whole color thing. So, like, uh, I kind of come up with this dumb thing I do. Well, this summer it's a portrait. Next summer it'll be landscape. And the summer after that it'll be still life. (laughs) Just to cover them all. So um, I like that because it's through, like, really paying attention to what I need to do to get certain. Because with oil you have to think of the layers and you have to, you know, you can't just, like, do it with acrylic. Although I learned a lot from using acrylic. I learned so much, and I painted in acrylic for years and years and years before I jumped to oils. Um, so I'd say most of my background has, was in working with acrylic, but I, I abandoned them because they, they shrink on the surface. The, they leave little pinholes. The acrylics. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like that, so... And then if you just water them down, it's like, well, why am I bothering to use acrylics? I might as well use watercolor. Watercolor. So um, that's why. And, and when I use oils, I seriously use, like, toxic colors that are, like, would kill you. But they're perfect for what I want. Like, you know, if I need a certain kind of red and I want a vermilion red, it's almost like a black market thing. I, I really have to look hard to find really mercury-based <laughs> <laughs> Vermeer, you know, the same stuff Vermeer used. But, boy, when you use the right kind of shit, excuse me, That's it's okay. beautiful. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, that's, I mean, there's a reason why those Dutch guys were able to get such vivid They're all colors, crazy, you know. You know? <laughs> well, They're all crazy. I've <laughs> um, got Dutch ancestors, so maybe that's why I'm allowed to use mercury-based uh, what's it called? A vermilion. It's it's bad. And I had to have a separate... I'm talking about this painting I did about... <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> I did this painting about... Do you want me to talk about that or go back to late bloomer? Let's, let's hear about the painting. I'm curious. Okay. Remember when they did the Masters of American Comics? Mm-hmm. Okay, I totally understand that you have to begin a conversation and you have this establishment of a canon so that you'll have a point of departure in which to discuss the topic. So there was a selection of, what was it, 15 guys? Yeah. Okay. Well, I just thought, it's just, I know they have to do that. The museum person in me understand. I did museology for a while. I totally understand that you have to have a place to start, so that's fine. But 15 guys? (laughs) Okay, and then this weird idea uh, had, well, I should show you some factors first. Um, 
there were a couple things, like my dog has arthritis, and so there, during that time when the, that Masters of Comics came out, you know, I'm drudging along trying to do my comics, and I'm carrying my dog up and down the stairs because she has arthritis, and, you know, I just cleaned up dog shit outside. And I'm schlepping up the stairs, and I'm thinking, um, this is crazy. I'm married to comics, you know. In other words, I was on my way to the studio. I'm carrying the dog up the stairs, and I just thought, I'm married to the form. I don't know what this, you know, masters of comics, I'm married to it. You know, that, that thought kind of came into my head. And somebody had said, oh, just before I came, oh, your dog is the queen. I said, I know, she's the queen of the house. So I married all that stuff together, and I made this painting. Um, I had this. I have this painting. It's about it's maybe 18 by, no, it's maybe 20 by 30 or something like that, huge. I, actually, I used to paint huge in college, and, and I was at my parents, and one of my big old paintings was in the basement. And I said, Dad, you don't need to live with this anymore. So we got out his skill saw and chopped it into, like, hunks, and it was one of those hunks from my old paintings that then became this panel that I gessoed over and went up into the outside up on the top of the hill. I put up like a, one of those little screen tents, and I thought, oh, this is going to be my little summer painting studio up here, you know, I'm going to do a portrait, and so um, it rained, and that night, rain dripped through the top of the supposedly waterproof tent right onto the gesso, and it made this, it looked like drips of ink on the right side of the painting. And I went, okay, I am going to work that into the picture. So from those drips from nature, I then painted myself as like Queen Elizabeth I (laughs) with the big stiff collar, but I'm holding the dog. The dog has the coronation crown, right? And I'm holding a pen, oversized pen instead of a scepter, and the pen is dripping the ink. And the queen is saying, I'm married to comics. There's all kinds of symbolism stuff in there. And it was because of that place in the dress where I needed to have a certain kind of red. That's where I used that poisonous mercury vermilion. And I had a whole separate tank of, like, uh, cleanup materials, you know, for the toxic uh, EPA whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I did that right so that if I used the mercury or even the lead-based or any of the toxic paints, I had a special separate place where I could rinse the terps out and stuff like that. But then that picture, you know, it was so huge and it was big and I thought, oh God. And somebody said, there's going to be a show, a counter show of women cartoonists. Dan Nadel put together a counter show in New York at Adam Baum Gold Gallery. And I thought, fine, I'm schlepping this painting to New York. <laughs> so I kind of built this, like, crate thing around it, put a handle on it, and it's so heavy, but we dragged it all, or we dragged it on a train, and we went up, and it was up there in New York on display. And nobody's ever seen it, though, except the people who were at that exhibit. I've heard good things about that show. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> excuse me, very good. And uh, it was great to see Diane, my friend Diane Newman. I hadn't seen her in a while. I think there's a picture of us online uh, somewhere, me and Diane at that show, and maybe Julia, too. And she saw Julia. She hadn't seen her in years, and she was like, oh, my God, Julia, you're so grown up. <laughs> my daughter's like, full grown. <laughs> Comics is a family to you. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, I, I uh, those are my peeps. <laughs> Let's jump back into uh, Late Bloomer. Um, 
Now, it's not a con- complete collection, right? It's kind of a... Everything that's not in the job thing is in Late Bloomer. Okay. I didn't repeat, I don't think. Okay. It is a complete... I wasn't sure. The job sure. thing was thematically about jobs. Of which you've had... a lot earlier work, I think. Although there's early stuff in Late Bloomer. Yeah, there's a couple of things, like the one, the, the weirdo work... uh, Well, I broke it into three sections, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, in terms of the time frame. So it is kind of like a a little chronological portfolio, I guess you could say. Yeah. And some of the work in there you uh, colored after, like, it was originally published in black and white, right? Very few, because I'm kind of, like, when I did that, I thought, this is cheating, I really don't want to do this. You know, cheating, what, who, who set the rules, I don't know, but... In my own mind, I thought, you know, I intended for this to be this way. I really don't want to go back and just fill in, because that's not my aesthetic, to just fill in the lines. So um, I did it in, like, there was, like, just a few of them, very few, maybe even only one or two. Yeah, I I didn't do that a lot. I I did it with that uh, Mrs. Fiola at the beginning, because I wanted to, it's actually the, like, the second thing I ever did ever. And um, so I did it with that one because I wanted the book to open on a color note. And then there was, I think, the one about New York or something in the backyard. Front. No, Front Yard Backyard was never published. But, no, there were there were very few that were colorized, let's say. Because, like I said, if I did them in black and white and that was the way they were, mm-hmm. that's the way they are. And that's the way it's going to be. Well, I can't speak for the future. <laughs> I'm just saying that was the decision then. And I do agree, you know, that... You know, I don't like colorizing old movies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what it is. That's a little different. It's a little different, mm-hmm. I think. Um, what's, as far as your take on, uh, or the work that you produce, it's predominantly autobiographical. What is it important to you to be telling your story? Ugh, that's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> Let's talk about bowling. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. What's important? I don't know. What, what attracts you to telling personal stories? I don't think of it that way. I just feel like, you know, it's all I know. Mm-hmm. I could, you know, if somebody says, well, we want you to do a, um, a story about, you know, uh, think of any topic. Okay, I'll research it and do all that kind of stuff. But you know, if you can't make a personal connection to it, it's going to be dry. And so I I think it started, I just thought there were some funny things going on in my life, and I just kind of wanted to show that. I think that's just normal when you're starting to become an adult or you're trying to find yourself. You just sort of want to say, you know, I think, you know what I think? I think the blogs take care of that need today. People are out there blogging and they're talking about all the stuff. Well... None of that was available, so I had to log it in somehow. Um, I don't know. I just thought some things were interesting. And, I, you know, I worried about that question a long time, and I'd say, Aileen, shit, Aileen, I don't want, I mean, who cares about my life? And she says, you're missing the point. It's the way you tell it that matters. That's true. So I thought, oh, I see. It's about the way I tell it. Okay. (laughs) Then I'll just keep going. There we go. Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) I think I'm going to do a quick song break. I'm going to play the the Alice Faye song. 
and then oh, we'll yeah. we'll jump into um you'll never know and in the a little bit about a little bit more about late bloomer too because there's a direct connection between the two i feel um so we'll be right back citr 1.9 fm ink studs never know just how much I miss you You'll never know just how much I care And if I tried I still couldn't hide My love for you ought to know for haven't I told you so a million or more times you went away and my heart went with you I speak your name in my every prayer if there some other way to prove that I love you I swear I don't know how you'll never know if you don't know now no love no nothing Till my baby comes home No, sir No, nothing As long as baby must roam I promised him I'd wait for him Till even Hades froze oh, I'm lonesome Heaven knows what I say still goes No love, no nothing And that's a promise I'll keep No fun with no one I'm getting plenty of sleep My heart's on strike and though it's like an empty honeycomb No love, no sir No nothing till my baby comes home If there is some other way to prove that I love you, I swear I don't know how. You'll never know if you don't know now. CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Studs, the radio show where we talk about comics. It's just about 3 o'clock here in Vancouver. Um, 
just to let folks know what's going on next week i'll be playing this is my first time trying this and doing audio documentary it was for uh coursing school on comics as a form of media and so i did interviews with scott mcleod jeet here matt madden uh tom spurgeon eddie campbell and i'm hoping to talk to gary groth on monday or tuesday um and if i do get a chance to talk to him uh he will also be a part of this and so i've asked all these guys the same set of questions and all of them have completely different answers and it's really interesting to see who disagrees on what and how strongly um just by how their answers are completely different um so yeah to take a listen next week and right now i'm talking to carol tyler uh her books are the job thing late bloomer and the one we're about to jump in now you'll never know a graphic memoir book one a good and decent man sound good yep there we go um now just before the song break and i guess i just mentioned what we listened to that was a you'll never know by alice Fay, mm-hmm. and that's where you got the title of the book from um, you're mentioning it's, or it's one of the reasons why that title um but i think um there are a couple of reasons for the title one of which is that is my parents sweetheart song oh yeah so when they met and fell in love and all that stuff that was popular and um you know they danced at the aragon ballroom and fell in love to that song so and my mom changed the lyrics it's supposed to say or it says you'll never know just how much i'll miss you and she would always say i love you Oh, yeah. your parents sound delightful. Yeah, well, they sound delightful. They sound delightful. They read delightful. <laughs> I'm going to say it like that. <laughs> they got you fooled. <laughs> I'm joking. They're wonderful people. But, you know, come on. Everyone says that about their, you know, your parents seem so nice. They're not. No, they're, they're they really, really not. Yeah. Are you there? Yeah. This phone goes nuts if it's not by its mommy all the time, so uh-huh. I have to be... Um, no, you know, they're wonderful, but they're, they're real people. They're dimensional, so, yeah, you know, shit happens. They all have their own personal foibles. Yep. But you were going to ask something. Oh, um, the title, the title. Okay, yeah, that's part of it. This, their love song. And the other part is, um, well, there's many parts. And through the book, I continually visit revisit that concept Mm -hmm. of how much i don't know how much it's not just you don't know but how i don't want to be careful saying this but it's like a generational Mm -hmm. not knowing generational there's the personal boundary that you don't know about somebody you don't know about them and their generation i mean there's things i don't know i you know the big theme is the army you know kind of the central theme not knowing what happened you know, chasing that. Um, you know, as the book goes on, there'll probably be 50 million re- ways you can think of how much you'll never know about a certain aspect. I mean, it keeps popping in for me. Um, because my parents are still alive. They're, you know, they're, it's wonderful that they're 90 years old and still alive, and they're still revealing incredible stuff, and it's like, I just can't get it all written down. Um, but I do have the book set in my head, all three books. I have it set. And um, the, there's a couple of little punctuations of new information that I have to throw in because they're just, like, perfect. But 
catching up artistically. <laughs> In other words, get it get it done. Get it done. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know how it ends and all that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, it's a continuously evolving story because it's part of it is about. And it's like half about your your father's experience in the war. The other half is your experience going through his experience and the way you relate to each other. That's right, or didn't relate, mm-hmm. you know, growing up. Um, and I'm also putting out the thesis here that this is probably the biggest unrecognized piece of our generational history, and that is... All these guys, all these dads went off to war. They all came back, I'm I'm saying it, for the most part, damaged in some way mm-hmm. by it. And that had to ha- have, that has to explain why my generation went through the changes and did the things and all the stuff that we did. Because our dads were emotionally still embroiled in the war. They were told to cut it off and get on with it. Yeah. Here's so, a GI Bill. Go do something with it. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. Just go to work. Yeah. Go have a family. Oh, what, you saw like 50 guys blown up in front of you? Ah, the hell with that. Just get back to work. So we have these guys who said, okay, we'll do. But you know what? It wasn't um, that simple. And so the component I seek to address in this book has to do with that, has to do with the unrecognized damage that this war caused them and their children, and then, you know, in a weird kind of way, (laughs) their grandchildren. And who knows how many generations, but it's upon those of us who can become cognizant of the damage to try and, at least through awareness, to work towards you know, understanding and do that. Healing in better days. See, I'm trying to do, trying to be a good gal here. <laughs> trying to do the right thing. But the title there is, um, yeah, I, 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 I would, the easy answer is, yeah, it's about uh, their sweetheart song. But there are other, so many other levels. And that's kind of how I frame the book, too. You know, I'm, I keep, like, opening the little circles out. And so it's like a pool of circles that, like on a lake. And they're all interconnected, I guess, because they all do. It all does make sense. It comes together eventually. (laughs) Stay tuned. Well, beginning of the, like, I read that book, and then I read Late Bloomer, and it feels like the last story in Late Bloomer. They they definitely directly correlate. And I know you originally had another story planned, Mm -hmm. and then that fell to the wayside when you're talking about the outrage yeah okay the outrage at the end there did did that end up kind of intertwining into what you were doing with you'll never know well you know um okay here's the deal the kid graduates from high school in 2003 book comes out in 2005 2003 to 2005 knock out some store knock out a couple of get this book out so i knocked out uh the outrage and uh once we ran, there were a couple little stories at the end there. In fact, once we ran, I did in the afternoon. Isn't that something? Really? And it just kind of came out. And the the outrage was the first time in 20 years I'd 
well, no, I don't see how old was she when she went off to college. I had significant blocks of time to, to actually devote to doing the work. So um, I really wanted to tell about um, this kind of my early days and, you know, how pissed off I was about having been <laughs> ripped off, actually, from some of my creative energies, you know. So um, that was kind of a... You know, you grind on something for years if you're mad about it. And I hadn't had a chance to process it properly because I was too busy with motherhood, and I had to really just sort of let it go. Um, and I did talk about that in the outrage about my college boyfriend who mm, took off with some of my ideas, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I had a chance to address that and then really kind of frame it in a way that, should have been. If I had done that years ago, I think it would have just been like a, a beefy rant. A rant. I got a beef, you know, what do you call it? Rant beef. <laughs> what is the right word? Ah, son of a bitch. You know, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the stories have to be, especially when you're getting into this nasty, when somebody's misbehaved, you got to say it right. You know, you got to frame it right. Yeah, the outrage kind of gives some background, and I also had to cop to the fact that I was kind of like psycho for a while in my own way. You know, motherhood kind of baby crazy, and it was not health. I was not healthy um, from lack of sleep and hormones and whatever you want to say. And I had to, you know, make that right and get that straight. And that's part of my ethic to make to make things to do to do right by uh, the story and by people, and it never hurt. You know, so mm-hmm. that's sort of. Uh, I'm not going to complain on somebody. I have to frame it up in such a way because nobody's perfect. We're all misbehaving in some way or another, you know. So how do you set it out as a story in a most humane and wonderful way? Um, that's interesting. Do you want maybe we'll let people with this know what the story is about, so we're not kind of what the outrage? Yeah, because we're kind of vaguely jumping you around. You tell it. I'm um, you say it. Okay. It well, it's a story. Like you said, of what you went through um, with a young child, very young child, and some of the postpartum stuff you're dealing with, and kind of sums up in, I guess, the br- breakage in the relationship between you and Justin, or how how it devolves, and eventually what gets picked up, and you'll never know is um, oh that he walked out that he that he walked out yeah and. Um, well, because, yeah, I was just so embroiled in, like, my anger towards this guy that I'd been with in college, and it just kind of, like, it, uh, I was kind of consumed by it. In a stupid way, it was like, it was always, like, on the back burner. I was always pissed off. Cause, well, also because it was in my face on television, you know? So every Saturday morning, I could tune in and see one of my sketchbook ideas or something I thought of. Somebody else has taken that to the bank and not me. I was pissed, needless to say. And I finally just, someday, at a certain point, I just thought, if I did it once, if I was that creative once, aren't I still? Come on. So there was that a moment for you going, I need to get back to this? No, I just said, I need to stop. Who cares? You know, we were together in college. Let's say that was so over, you know. Right now, this day is delightful. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, look at my, you know, my little daughter would do something sweet, like, you know, as parents we see things, or 
I don't know, I kind of get into comedy. I was doing comedy for a while. I loved that. I was in L.A. doing comedy at the comedy store and stuff like that. And one of my assignments was to observe the world in a funny way. And so I sure did. I really turned that on. I just started observing life even much more hyper than before, you know, trying to see how I could turn it into, like, comedy and jokes and stuff. So, um, and there was a lot of affirming the, the kind of the funny, the way I would see things funny. Um, so, you know, I just thought it's stupid to be worried about something that happened in the past or who cares what, who cares what happens to somebody else. I'm, I don't want to miss right now. This is all, it's all here. You know, I'm, I'm awake and present with it. So I just never turn that channel off anymore. You know, it's like, oh, I love this. I love, I love everything about this life. I don't care what was in a sketchbook now. I love that, you know, the way that paper's crinkling right now, or whatever it was, you know, just mm. finding it. You know, just, but it, it wasn't that I had to find it. It was all there. I just had to wake up to it, you know. A so, renewed understanding. Yeah, it. You know, I just woke up. Enlightenment, I guess. So, um, yeah, the book just says, you know, at a certain point, I, it was just a moot, it was just ridiculous to grind on that and to just, like, Get the life back in gear, you know. Love your life again. So what? Well, let's jump right into your father's story. Yeah. Or I guess it's your story and it's your father's story. Um, and you're right. I was going to do, I was going to continue the outrage where it shows at the end my husband is on the phone talking to somebody and I'm like unaware of what's going on at the end of the outrage. Because, you know, I'd just gone through, I was just talking about not only that, but I, I was feeling so ashamed of uh, this um, postpartum psychosis event that I'd had with my child, which, you know, now, what's her name, Brooke Sh- Shields, yeah. pops to the fact that she almost lost her mom, you know, it happens with mothers, so, um, I, you know, it was just that for me it was shocking, and there was no ever any recognition or support uh for the psychotic episodes. It can happen for mothers, so for me it was shocking. There was no uh, no recognition in, in the world that that could happen. Now they have interventions for people. Um, but then what happened was I, I kind of got so involved in, like, really just making sure that she was okay and we were okay and everything was fine and the life was good and working and just trying to keep it, you know, just... You do that. This is life. You just kind of get in there. But um, Justin's brother passed away, and I, I really wasn't tuned in to the moment um, of that with him. Mm-hmm. You know. So um, that was he took that very hard. He died suddenly at 45, and uh, that was very uh, shocking and hard for him. So it was something that tumbled out of that. So in the in the the you'll never know. Um, I'm kind of living with the aftermath of his um, uh, decision to kind of find out what that was about for himself. You know, kind of grieve that. It's, it's like a cataclysm for both of you in different. Yeah, I mean, aspects. I, I, I was having problems with my personal life and all of that in my past early when Julia was a baby. And for him, it came on with his brother's death when she was like, you know, 12 or something. So, 
But everybody, not every, not one person on this life is untouched by tragedy, and it's how we handle it. And you know, it's kind of whatever happens. You know, we have to look at how we live our lives and who our supports are, and how we how we kind of react or deal with it is who we who we are at the time. And you know, we're not perfect people, and nobody told me how to be a mom, and nobody told me how to be a married person to a cartoonist or to be a cartoonist myself or any of these factors and so kind of groping through that and trying to find my way um i don't know <laughs> that's what the stories are about you know just trying to figure it out looking at um the work itself within you'll never know mm-hmm. um it's really break away from kind of the previous models of like following somewhat of a page aspect um did you kind of go into it going i want to do this different or is it just kind of a byproduct of the materials you're dealing with because you kind of cover that in there too well you know i'm a poor person (laughs) financially you're a cartoonist i'm a cartoonist all right you use your materials well and recycle and all that stuff ink's cheap um no i mean i'd worked on that format portrait which you do in all you know since I learned comics, you, it's, uh, the pages are uh, 10 by 13, I think, or 11 by 14, something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's, and it's um, uh, wide, uh, sh- short is wide and long is length. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm trying to say? Portrait format. Yeah. Yeah. So I, had to, I just thought, I'm just going to turn it this way and see, you know, see what this is like, because mainly my, my uh, concern was that it fall across one's lap like... A scrapbook. Yeah. I wanted that feel. I wanted people to feel like they were at my house, and it, it was, you know, intimate in that sense. They were looking at my stuff. So that's sort of the feel I went for. And, um, even though I had a lot of this paper, I also obsessed over, you know, God, should it be a fourth of an inch this way, or should I add a half or cut off? So I ended up chopping it, cropping it to a certain sweet point that it turned out to be, you know. So, yeah, that was, um, I had the paper, but I also had the conscious decision to, because, you know, I'm kind of a perfectionist nut. I wanted it to be just a certain way and had to um, make it, I did obsess over whether it should be a fourth inch or an eighth inch or a sixteenth or a thirty-second or a half. Cut this way or that way or whatever. So, I know Kim was, like, tearing his hair out because I was like, let's try that. How about this one? I want that. He finally just said, how about this? And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes one adamant answer. <laughs> now, tell me about the um, the exploring the history with your dad, how that's been, <laughs> or the, the, the challenges that have come with that. Hmm. Well, oh, I loved history before I started this project, and I'm proud to say... I'm a gold rush expert. I think I might have said that in the book. <laughs> I think you did, yes. So I know about the gold rush. Um, and now I know about World War II. So, uh, you know, if he'd say I was in Italy and I don't know where the hell it was, or it was during this time, blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, well, okay, according to your uh, discharge papers, Dad, you would have been there in, like, July of 44. After D-Day, you would have been in Italy doing this and that. I guess so. I don't know. Okay. So um, then I'd have to go 
find out well, what was going on in Italy in this area that he's marked down as having been in in July of 44. Mm-hmm. August. He was there from July, August, September, uh, July, August, September in Italy, 44. So he don't know. He just knows he was drunk and he was doing this or <laughs> this and such, you know. Or like in North Africa, as I told, he was there in June of 44 doing this and such. So I'd have to look in history books what was the Army doing in this area. And there's a thing called the Order of Battle, which tells you where the conflict, um, you know, where the fighting was and what what happened and where the... There, I have a book of maps that shows the different, you know, the Nazis were here and the Allies were here, and it was the Polish forces that were at Monte Cassino, etc. So um, putting all these things together, I then started to get the picture because he was just addled by it, you know, and didn't quite know. You'll never know. Um, so... Um, as a historian, I yeah, I, I've had to just become one of those book geeks. You know, I just read. I go to the, shoot, I go over to the university library, and I'm the only one that's checked out the book according to the stamp thing on the inside cover since like 35 years ago or something like that. <laughs> so I'm reading these books, you know, I'm the only one that checks them out. <laughs> um, but I've, I've read a lot. So I have to, what I have to do is interface, what a cool word. That's like a college kid word. I have to interface what I know about history with what he told me mm-hmm. and then try to extract something. And then if I, then I have to cleverly ask him questions without showing my hand so that I can get him to forthcome with the information because I don't ever want to put words in his mouth or suggest something to him. So I let him tell me, you know, I'll say, like, um, uh, how, how many, how much of the time when you were in Italy were you, like, wet? Were you physically wet because of the rain? And I happen to know it rained a lot and there was mud and all this kind of stuff. And then that triggers, just the sense of wetness would trigger something, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to saying... When you were in such and such, you know, so I, I try to get at it with him, like the everyday, like I'll say, where did you have to take a dump? They're more like emotive yeah. questions. Or like, just think of anything you had to do today. Get something to eat. Where'd you eat? Or what was it? Did you, you know, did you have a can opener for those? Okay, and then he was telling me, I don't rem-, he said, I didn't eat rations. There was always a chow truck nearby. Okay, then that tells you something. Or if he says he's going to fix a bayonet on his gun, that says something. That tells you that he's at, that's at a certain point in fighting that you add a bayonet. Or when you um, have a chow, chow line nearby, that means you've got a support unit, you know. So there's these little things that I've had to learn about. I've had to learn the whole hierarchical structure of the Army and who the players were and um you know, where the thoughts were and stuff like that. You know, like, what was top command deciding and um, what these acronyms meant and um, what the strategies were and what the grunt guys, you know, the dog-faced soldiers, what they would have known. Like, did they, like, I, I said something about D-Day, Dad, you know, what was going on? And, he, and that triggered that he remembered where he was. 
the day they heard that the Normandy landings had occurred and what that was like at the place where he was. So they were able, you know, a bunch of guys, wherever he was, were talking about that. So, um, which triggered another thought, you know. So just talking, knowing my military history has made me um, know how to talk to him about it. Mm-hmm. With giving you an understanding yeah. of kind of investigative questioning yeah, investigative reporter just like you read all my <laughs> <laughs> i got my little flip book of notes and ready to go yeah you didn't have to read those thick army books no covers oh god that's a sleeper but you know whatever I I'm, like a, it. I'm a history major at school so okay i understand i see so we're in competition for these books right <laughs> on the shelves Sure, by 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 a very long, long distance. <laughs> uh-huh. No, there's there's never like I think. Oh, I have to go over and get such and such. You know, so and so's book, Margaret Book White. Um, they called it the Purple Heart Valley. I need to go over there and get that book. I'll just get it tomorrow next week because I know it's going to be there. <laughs> there's only that brief tier, brief period of time during uh, paper writing where a book may disappear for a little bit, mm-hmm. but it'll be back. Not at my college. Not at your college. Oh, it's a fight at my college. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I'm at the end of my time slot here. And we didn't even talk about nothing. <laughs> the book. We're talking about... <laughs> when is the, the second part? Do you expect that to come out? Mm. A while? No, it's supposed to be one, two, three. One year, next year, next year. Oh, fabulous. So two is coming out like... You'll have it in your Christmas stocking in 10, and then the next one is 11. Well, you know what? We'll have to have you back on to talk about it again. <laughs> I hope I didn't put people to sleep with this army talk. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Did that, I answer uh-huh. all the questions okay? I feel bad. Maybe we should have talked about more to the point, or I shouldn't have gone on and on. I think it was fantastic. Thank you so much, Carol. Okay. Um, what song are you going to play now? I think I'm going to play the the Donald Fagan. That's an awesome song. There we go. A little, uh, it's not Steely Dan, but Steely Dan-esque. No, I love Steely Dan, and I'll have to say that song um, was when I heard, the, fir- the first day I laid out all the pages for You'll Never Know, or all the my notes, that song came on, and it says, you know, come on, daddy, get in, let's go. It was like, I'm starting this book. See? <laughs> there we go. It's apropos. Yep. There. Thank you so much, Carol. All right. Have a good day. Okay, bye. bye. Uh, that was Carol Tyler. Uh, as a reminder, the book is You'll Never Know um, for Fan Graphics as well as Late Bloomer and the job one, which is called... I stuck it away, the job thing. Uh, check it out, uh, fanographics.com, and I'll post a link to Carol's actual personal site um on the website inkstuds.com up next is uh la french connection um i would pronounce it properly in french but i would do something terrible to the language so uh yeah talk to you all later
Let's talk about the good times. 